Amen. Good morning. Hey, you're you're with me already. Good to see you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. It is great to see you. I mean, what a great week we've had. Uh, Students had a had a fun time uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday out in the community, uh, washing windows, paying for gas, inviting people to block parties, and spending time with refugees. And just man, our kids, our students were out there this week, being a light in the community. I'm so proud of you and excited that. that now as adults, we've been challenged uh, to follow their lead as well. And so, um, great week uh, this week. If you follow us on Twitter or Facebook, you've seen some of those pictures. Uh, i got a couple announcements for you as we get started this morning. Um, first of all, um, kids' camp is tomorrow, starts tomorrow. Our, our kiddos, third through sixth grade, will be leaving for kids' camp. And so, I want to invite you and ask you to pray with us as a church for them um, as these little hearts head off to uh, camp to be away from their families and all the potential emotional stress that will come along with that, that God would use the next five days um, in eternal ways to call to himself the hearts of our children. And so if you would pray with us, even if you don't have kids going, we would covet your prayers um, as a family praying for those kiddos this week. We're excited about what God wants to do there. Um, another announcement I want to make um, is, has to do with staff. And so um, the way <clears throat> vision works for us as a church is, is a lot like the way a trellis works for a vine. We lay out a plan and we and we, we lay it out, we, we talk about it, we say, here's where we want to go. And then we, we step back and wait for God to cause the growth and increase. And, and as a church family, we grow as a vine. And, and God takes us as, on his pace to, down the journey he has for us. And so over the last five or six months, we've been without um, anybody um, leading out in our adult discipleship ministries, which includes our life groups and several other areas of ministry. And so we've been praying. The elders have been meeting with our leadership team in discussion and prayer really over the last two and a half months. And so um, we're finally at a place where God has shown us what he wants to do there. And so I'm excited to let you know that Brian Lamb will be making a transition in his staff responsibilities. He is still going to be over our student ministry, um, but where he was over technology and uh, was helping out with administration and worship, he's going to be letting that go to now take up the baton of adult discipleship. And so I want you to be praying for him and encouraging him in this role. Uh, Many of you heard him preach in June. He preached twice in June, and, and God is just growing his life in some really significant ways, um, calling him towards pastoral ministry. Um, Brian is also in our um, pastoral residency. If you don't know, we have a pastoral residency here. It's a one-year program for seminary graduates or those who've been in full-time ministry for a number of years to give them a chance to, um, to put into practice, to get some experience in pastoral ministry before going on somewhere else. And so when Brian wraps up that um, process in about five months, his title will change uh, to Discipleship Pastor. So I want to let you know that. That's how God's growing him as he grows us as a church. And uh, so be sure to encourage him and pray for him uh, as he and Allie follow the Lord's call in their life. So, um, so, so much going on uh, in our church in, in so many ways. I'm glad you're here. If you're a visitor, hopefully you've been welcomed. You've been uh, welcomed into the family. And uh, we hope that God will use today. Uh, in a significant way to encourage you and your life and where you are. Um, so we're going to open our Bibles to Hebrews 9 and continue in the series. So give me a minute to turn there. If you want to grab your, your Bible, your tablet, your phone, um, whatever it is that you use to open God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles under the chairs around you. Um, we do that because we want you to open God's Word with us. It's, it's so important for us that you hear from God more than you hear from us. And so the way we do that is we... We open his word and just want to invite you to do that. We're going to be in Hebrews 9 in just a moment. I'm really uh, quite anxious about where we're going this morning in the sermon. Um, We have been in the Hebrews series now. And and last week in chapter 8, we saw that through Jesus, God has opened up a better covenant for us. 
This is your New Testament, the new promise that God has made to us in Christ. Better than the old covenant. Why? Because the old covenant, though God kept up his end of the deal, which was what? Obey and you'll be blessed. We didn't keep up with ours, right? Though we promised God will obey, we, we didn't. So there was a fault in the old covenant, according to Hebrews 8. The fault was ours. The problem was that we couldn't keep our end of the deal. And so this beautiful new promise has been opened up to us, this new covenant in Christ, that by believing we will be blessed. And so what's beautiful about this promise is not only is there a way now for you and I to access the presence of God, um, but the, the new covenant is actually retroactive, covering back all of creation, making good on all of God's promises that even those in the Old Testament who believed God are saved by grace through faith. And so today we're going to be looking at now the implications of the new covenant, specifically the idea of worship, that through Christ now, a new and better way has been opened up for us. And so what we mean by that is a way in terms of a way to worship, but we also mean way like a route, a way to get into God's presence has now been opened up a better way for those who believe. So in Hebrews 9, um, it's a beautiful chapter. It's rich. Um, I, I think that after studying it deeply this week, we'll come back at some point in the future and do a worship series just on Hebrews 9, maybe five or six weeks. It's a beautiful chapter, rich with um, symbolism and Old Testament um, uh, symbolism of, of, of the, the, the items and the elements of worship that though we don't utilize those items anymore, those artifacts anymore, all that they represented still holds to be true. So, so much about what we see about who God is and his nature and who we are through Old Testament worship is still true. The only difference is now we have a better way to approach his presence with confidence. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 9. The first five verses outlay the items that were used in worship. We'll talk through that, and then we'll pick up some of the procedures that they went through. Let's start in verse 1 of Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The author is making the same observation. There's a lot to unpack here. So we're going to just in brevity talk through a few of the things that have been mentioned. So starting as, as far back as the book of Exodus in your, in your Bible, God has, big, has prescribed specific elements in worship, things he wants in terms of items to be present, uh, the actual structure, whether it was the, the, the temple represented in the tent, the temporary temple, the permanent temple, wasn't set up till years later in the direction of King David's son Solomon. Um, but even the structure of the tent or the temple reflected something that was true, the items there, the procedures the priests went through. So we're going to talk through some of those things. So the author of Hebrews points out a few of the most significant things. Uh, and so let's walk through that together. Verse 1 said, Now even the first covenant had regulations for Worship. So we know the author is transitioning to talk specifically about worship. So what I want to do is I'm going to just start with um, a baseline definition of, of worship. Because, let's be honest, when you and I hear worship, we, we tend to think music. We tend to think singing. 
Now, singing and music are a significant portion of our worship or should be a significant portion of our worship according to the scriptures. But just singing and just music and just songs is not in and of itself worship. So I'm going to give you just a baseline definition of worship and we'll move on. Caution. This is my definition. Don't look it up in Webster's and expect to find this definition. This is the best that, that I could do. Here's what I believe worship truly is. It is a sentiment or an expression of adoration and exaltation for the purpose of glorification. So a bunch, bunch of big words there, right? I do that just so you'll be impressed. We there yet? Okay. Let's talk about what we actually mean. So a sentiment, meaning an inward feeling, that worship, first of all, takes place inwardly. It's something inside of you. It's an inward sentiment. Or, or and, an expression, meaning what? It's something that then therefore comes out. Jesus talks about how um, it's, not what, it's, not, it's not your words that defile a person. It's, the, it's what's inside the heart. And the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak, right? And so there's an inward sentiment that gets expressed outwardly. So it's inward sentiment, but it's also an expression outwardly of a sense of adoration or affection. There's something admirable about the object of your affection. It's an outward, it's, it, it exists in an outward exaltation, lifting up for the purpose of glorification. What do we mean by that? Wanting others to see it the same way you see it or feel about it the same way you feel about it. Okay? So, so many things can become items or objects of worship, right? Hobbies can become objects of worship like that. Anytime, right, our inward affections begin to stir for a thing, whether it's a career path, a job position, um, a relationship, um, a hobby, uh, an accolade, the applause of men, whatever it is that stirs your affections, that causes you then to exalt it outwardly for the purpose of what? So others will admire it. Others will adore whatever it is. It's worship. So many things can become worship, relationships, But I would say this, in every one of our hearts, there is a worship issue called sin. And every time I sin, I'm worshiping. And think about it. What is being true? What is being expressed when I sin? I'm saying to God, I know better than you. I want what I want over what you want. I trust my ability to reason over your ability to reason. I am going to give my energy and effort towards the the objects of what I think will make me happy instead of what your word says will make me happy. So my sin is self-idolatry. It's worship. It's an inward sentiment. It comes out as an outward expression, an exaltation of what I think is best or what I want to do. So we're all worshipers all the time. The question is, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping your own intuition, your own ambitions? Are you worshiping relationships, career paths, identity, accolades, sports, academics, promotions, hobbies? What are those things that sit on the throne of your life that you adore, you exalt? See, in the Ten Commandments, God starts by saying, What? You shall have no other gods before me. What is he saying? He's not just saying before as in first in place. He's saying before me in terms of his presence. He alone is worthy to sit on the throne of our hearts as the object of our affections and our exaltation for the purpose of what? So others will see him the way we see him and love him the way we love him, his glorification. 
So now we see worship is so much more than just music, right? I mean, hopefully what we sing and hear is worship. It's an expression of how we feel about God. It's an exaltation. We're lifting him up. So why? So others will see him the same way we see him and love him the same way we love him and trust him the same way we trust him. So now we're going to go back to the Old Testament and look at these items of worship and how they were designed by God to cause the people to do this, yet they didn't work. So even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared. So before the temple was established, the, perp- the permanent temple, the tent was there, meaning that the, the place of worship was portable, was movable. People of God could take it with them and, and reset it up wherever they were. Now there were some things that were involved in the tent that we're going to see here. The first thing was this, that it was divided into sections. So you had outer court, inner court. You had the holy place, then you had the most holy place. Okay, we're going to see in a minute that there was some, some limitation as to who could enter what area. You had the general assembly of people who had their place on the outside. There was, a, there was a place for the priest to go in on a regular basis. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the inward section that was reserved for the Day of Atonement once a year for the high priest. So this tent was prepared. The first section in which were, we'll start with this, the lampstand. Now the lampstand is that seven armed lampstand that you've seen probably in so many maybe old images, Old Testament images, or Jewish worship. It's, a, it's basically a candlestick. It has seven candles on it, one in the center, primary candle, and then three branches on either side. And it was made out of gold, and they carved it and fashioned it according to God's prescription to look like an almond tree. It was, the branches were actually budding and had blossoms on them, and it looked like a, like a gold version of an almond tree. And so what would happen is this was placed in the first section, and so without it, there was no light for the priest to interact with God or to give uh, sacrifices or to maintain the temple. So it was really important that, um, that the priest went in on a regular basis and maintained this candle stand and kept the light burning. Each of the candles was olive oil burning, and the priest would regularly attend this. Without it, they would have been fumbling around in the dark, right? And so you had this lampstand there in the first section of the temple, the light allowing the priests to come in and interact with God and worship on behalf of the people. They did this on a regular basis. Now, the next thing that you saw there in the intersection was a table, and on the table was the bread of presence, okay? So the bread of presence, this is the second part of verse 2, and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Now, um, Exodus 25:30 explains a little bit about the bread of presence for us, what it reflected and resembled in terms of worship. So here's what Exodus 25:30 says, "And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me." Here's the important word, regularly. Now here's what the table and the bread represented. It represented God's desire to commune and fellowship with us. It was an intimate expression of God setting a table before His people, saying, "This is where I want to spend time with you." And so as the priests would come in, they would keep the bread fresh, resembling this. there was a freshness to God's desire to want to be with his people. And so it was called the bread of the presence. This is very similar to how Jesus describes the kingdom. It's like a feast where where the, the, uh, the host of the feast, first he does what? He invites all the prominent people in the town, VIP. All the the who's who are invited to this feast. And, And then what happens? None of them show up. 
And so then he sends his servants out to do what? To go to the slums, the ghetto, the, the other side of town, to find the homeless and those who are without and those who have been cast out by society and invite them to the feast. And Jesus says, this is reflective of the kingdom, right? And the host of the feast is God, and he sets a table before us, and he invites the least of us to do what? To dine with him. Of course, Jesus reflects this in his earthly ministry. He was accused so many times, what? Of eating with tax collectors and pagans and sinners. Reflecting the heart of the Father to, to have fellowship and to commune and to dine with his people. This is even reflective in the new church in Acts 2. Peter preaches the first sermon. The people believe and are baptized. And then Acts 2, starting in verse 42, describes what took place. And one of the indicatives of the, of the early church community is what they shared meals together. They didn't just show up casually for once-a-week gatherings. They, they shared life together in this intimate expression of sharing a meal, which is reflective of God's desire to commune with his people. It was part of the Old Testament worship. And so you had the bread of the presence there on the table. Now, behind the table was a curtain. Okay, And so there was, a, there was, a, there was an incense burning that the priests would tend to as well. And this incense would drift through the curtain into this holy place. Oftentimes the incense is reflective of our worship of God so that what we bring before God would be pleasing to his nostrils. And so you had this thick curtain, which was a veil. It was thick. Behind the curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. This curtain that divided was incredibly thick. Um, it was made out of uh, yarn of blue and purple and scarlet and had cherubim, these, these glorious angels embroidered high up on the curtain, reflecting what? That whatever was behind this curtain was majestic and powerful and, and, and set apart, not common, not to be approached lightly as the veil withheld the presence of God from the people. Behind the curtain was the holy place, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And this was the place that held the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you Indiana Jones fans are familiar with that. The Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was a container. God told the people of God to build this container, this ark, out of a certain kind of wood and to layer it with gold. And inside of it, it had these specific items. And it was covered with a, with a cover or a, a seat that was really significant. So on the, on the ark, what was inside of it were the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets. Some of the manna that God had provided in the desert was, was in there. And also the staff of Aaron was in there. So what do these items represent? What do they reflect? Verse 4 says, Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides of gold. Now, Exodus 25 verse 22 says this about the most holy place. There I will meet with you. So we know that what? The, the Holy of Holies is the place where God meets with, in the most intimate way, his people. And from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. What is he talking about? So the lid of the Ark, which is gold, had two golden cherubim, these angelic-like creatures facing one another. Protecting something, guarding something, shrouding something. In between them was the place called the mercy seat or the seat of atonement. So what would happen is this. 
On a regular basis, the priest would enter in the first holy place, the outer section, keep the candles going, make sure the bread was fresh, offer some small sacrifices on a regular basis. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was called to come into the Holy of Holies, to enter into a place where no other man dared to enter into the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in there, lit on top, cherubim, surrounding the mercy seat, and there he would sprinkle the blood of bulls and lambs and goats on behalf of the sins of the people. It was a very, very scary thing that took place. Matter of fact, everything about this worship was to communicate some really specific things about who God is. That his presence is holy. It's not to be taken lightly. That there is a real healthy reverence and fear for God's presence. There's no flippantly entering into God's presence. Matter of fact, where our sin is confronted with the holy presence of God, without a mediator, what happens? We're struck dead immediately. This is, this is indicated at the very beginning of God's covenant, even with Adam. What did he say? The moment you eat from this tree, Adam, the moment you take the law into your own hands, the moment you begin to worship your own abilities and intellect over mine, you will surely what? Die. Very next chapter, Genesis 3, he and Eve both sin and rebel against God, and what do they do? They have to hide now. They have to veil themselves from each other and ultimately from God because death had now entered. And so from that moment moving forward, the pure, holy presence of God was shrouded from the sins of the people, not to protect God, but to protect us. So only this holy man, this high priest, could enter in, and only if he brought blood from the animals to sprinkle on the mercy See Now, the beautiful thing about this inner courts, this, this, this intersection, the Holy of Holies, was that the presence of God was the light. This is where we talk about the Shekinah glory of God, the unapproachable light, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. This is the same glory in Revelation that we read about that, that, that the author describes to us. There will be no need for sun or moon in the new Jerusalem. Why? The glory of God is there, and it's enough. And so this glory of God dwelt over the ark, reflecting the perfect, pure presence of his holiness shrouded from the people. The items in the ark of the covenant were this perpetual reminder. Now remember where they're at. They're inside the ark underneath the mercy seat. Three specific items, stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, what? Reflecting what? Man's continual disobedience to God. Underneath the mercy seat was this reminder of our rebellion, our perpetual, consistent idolatry to worship our own desires over God's and to sin. The manna that was was in there as well reflected the disappointment and the disobedience of, of the people of Israel. If you think about it, if you know the story of manna, they're wandering through the desert, they get hungry, and what do they do? They begin to rebel and test God. What do they say to him? Did you bring us out here in the desert to starve us to death? Take us back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than die out here of starvation. And, and God, in his grace and mercy, provides generously through manna all that they need. And you'd think, what, that they would become grateful people, trusting people, but what? No, they over and over again test God and disobey God and rebel against God and, and say, God, why have you brought us out here to starve us to death? 
Manna underneath the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant was this second reminder of the disappointment of God's people. Of course, the staff of Aaron as well was a monumental sign of the people's rebellion against God. So underneath this mercy seat were these tangible reminders of ultimately our rebellion, our self-centered idolatry, our propensity as, as God's creation to rebel and take things into our own hands, to trust our own intellect over God's wisdom, and ultimately, ultimately, to place our own affections on the throne and to chase after what we want in life. And this was the Old Testament environment of worship. Now, verse 6 begins to talk about why this is a limited worship, why this worship is not the same as what we have in Christ. So verse 6 says, these preparations have thus been made. So whatever problem was, whatever problem there was with the worship in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, right, whatever it was, it wasn't because they didn't go through the motions and make the provisions. Thus, these preparations have thus been made. The priests go in regularly into the first section performing their duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without what? Taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So even when they went by the book, this worship was limited. Limited in what ways? Limited in the sense that, that the congregation couldn't go in. So, so you and I, as just Israelite people, God-fearing, God-loving people, we weren't allowed access to God's presence. It was limited. Only the descendants of the tribe of Levi, the priests, were allowed to go into the first section. So they would go in for us. And they would tell us about the presence of God. They would tell us about how they met God in there. And then, and then the, the, the true, pure existence of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, only one man was allowed to go in. And so it was very limited. So what was meant to be this expression of communion between God and his people was limited. Why? Because... We are lawbreakers, rebellious people. We need the veil to shroud the holiness of God from us, lest we perish. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So that first section there was, was a reminder that the presence of God hasn't been opened up. Verse 9 says, which is, a symbol, is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement that we just talked about, the gifts and the sacrifices are offered, but here's a problem, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So not only was it limited access physically, it was limited in the terms of what it actually did for the people. They just went through the motions, but it didn't do anything to heal the brokenness of their hearts. It didn't do anything to clear their consciences. It didn't do anything to unlock and unshackle them from their shame or their guilt. It was a momentary expression of worship. And so for the moment, they might have felt better about things. But as soon as worship was done, they, what? They felt the, sh the shackles of their sin keeping them from coming into the presence of God, reminding them of their disobedience. Now, there was, 
All throughout the Old Testament, God expresses to his people his dissatisfaction with their worship. Um, through the prophet Isaiah, God most explicitly um, calls them out and, and discusses with them the problem with their worship. So let's look at Isaiah together for just a moment, starting in chapter 1. As the prophet Isaiah opens up his prophecy, God begins with a stern warning about worship. Look at what he says starting in verse 10. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Let's just say that's not a good way to start off. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah reflecting what? Perpetual rebellion against God. The unleashing of God's wrath against sin. And so here we are hundreds of years later, God calling out the people of God with Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a good start. Verse 11. What to me, this is God speaking, is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. So what was intended to be pleasant to the nostrils of the Lord, the, the worship of the people to drift into its presence and be pleasant and pleasing. God says, your worship stinks. I'm, I'm tired of you slaughtering animals thinking that's enough. I'm tired of you going through the motions thinking that's what I actually am after here. What I want is to commune with you. And he said, I've had enough. Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and, and solemn assembly. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Later on in the prophet Isaiah, verse tw or chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, the Lord said, because these people, this people, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is only a commandment taught by men. Therefore, I, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What's God saying? I'm dissatisfied with this version of worship. Why? They're honoring me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. But I'm not going to leave them there. There's a new covenant coming. There's a better promise coming. Now, it's interesting because Jesus, when you follow his, his ministry through the Gospels, um, when he interacts with the Pharisees in so many ways, he's interacting with us. See, the Pharisees had gotten to a point where they had made God's law a system. And they had, had created in this system these benchmarks that were somewhat attainable that made them feel better about themselves. Now, why did they need to do that? Because the Old Testament worship didn't do anything to clear their consciences. So they had to do something, right, as the spiritual leaders to take things into their own hands. And so what they did is they created this legalistic system of worship. And it had gotten so extensive that they were using that now to justify pretty much anything they wanted in life, whether it was divorce or 
taking advantage of people. And so Jesus actually calls them out in Matthew 15, these Pharisees, and the specific issue that they're having is this, that they're, they're not helping the people around them, specifically their own family, with financial needs and taking care of the. So what they're doing is they're saying, well, we wish we could come help you, but we can't because we've got to take all of our resources to the temple, and it's needed in worship. And so, Mom, Dad, you're just going to have to do without because God needs our stuff. And so <laughs> Jesus calls them out in Matthew 15, 8, and he quotes Isaiah. He says, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, if we're not careful, we'll slip back into Old Testament worship and do the same thing. We'll make worship out to be some system, an order of songs, and you pray here, and you sing here, and you sit here, and, and if you do all these things, God will show up, and he'll heal, and, and everything will be good, and, and so we, we check off our boxes, and we, we stand, and we sing, and we sit, and we, right, and we, if we're not careful, we'll slip right back into this form of worship. Now, verse 11, this is the beautiful thing about Hebrews, so all throughout Hebrews, there's this underlying tone of Jesus is better. And the author is continually saying, this is what the old covenant looked like. Here's what the new covenant looks like. And so here's where we turn the corner in verse 11. We says, but when Jesus, like those are, those are good words. So we're not still under the old covenant. We don't still go through the old worship ritual ceremony. In Jesus, we do things different. But when Jesus appeared as what? A high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation. He's referencing Jesus where you know, he said, I'll tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. Now for those who in Christ, where's the temple? We are the temple of God's presence. And so now we don't go to the old tent in Jerusalem, the old worst center of worship, do we? We can worship right here. You can worship in your home. You can worship in your car. You can approach the presence of God wherever you are. The old temple has been torn down and a new one has been built in its place. One not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 12, here's, here's where we turn the corner. He, being Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, that, thus securing and eternal redemption. We need to stop for a minute. What just got expressed to us is, the, is probably one of the most significant differences in the old form of worship versus the new one. So if you were an Israelite in the Old Testament and you trusted the priest to go in on your behalf and once a year, it was a big deal, Day of Atonement, right? You show up with your family, it's the Day of Atonement. This is the day that the priest, the holy man, the high priest gets to go into the presence of God and stand before Shekinah glory, the unapproachable light, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for my sins. It was a big deal. Right? You would travel from afar to be there at that moment in time where in that brief moment, perhaps, you felt safe. You felt forgiven. You felt healed. You felt released from shame and guilt. But what would happen as soon as the priest would come back and you would begin to pack up your things and head back home? You would begin to feel what? The weight of your own sin once more. Why? Because it was a momentary relief, not an eternal redemption. 
Matter of fact, next week we're going to come back and look at the contrast between the sacrifice of the bull and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's the most significant difference is that the sacrifice of the bull brought momentary relief. Made me feel better about myself for the moment. But as soon as I walk out and rebel, what? I feel shame again. I'm so thankful. Like, we can't gloss over this. Jesus has entered once for who? All. Once for all. There's no need for him to go back again. We don't have to have Jesus go over and over and over again to the cross on our behalf. Once for all. I need permanent, perpetual, eternal redemption in my life. I'll give you a few examples. Um, If you were to study um, my parenting, maybe follow me for seven days. There's going to be a few brief moments in there where I'm almost getting it right. And if I could just record about two to three minutes of my parenting in a week and show you on a screen just those little snippets, you would look at me and go, wow, you're a good parent. Wow, model parent. That's how you do it? Man, and you'd be so impressed. But the vast majority of the time, what you're going to see in me is parenting that's influenced by my sinfulness. I'll parent out of frustrations or disappointment or even anger sometimes. Instead of motivating with grace and love, I'll slip into trying to motivate with shame and guilt. And, and right, I'm not a perfect parent. Right? So I need what? I need eternal redemption. I don't need momentary redemption. For just this moment, I need it on Monday, too, and Tuesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and I need the grace that stays with me, that meets me new every morning. I mean, you can just go on and on in my life, my ability to be a husband. Two to three minutes out of a week, I I might come close to getting it right, where you'd go, wow, that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 5, right there, laying your life down for her. Man, high five. But the vast majority of my week, you're going to see me being a husband and leading out of selfishness and, and arrogance and, and, and ultimately sinfulness. And I need the grace and the mercy of God to meet me new every morning. Every morning. I need an eternal redemption, not momentary relief. My ability to be a friend. Ask, those, ask my good friends how good of a friend I actually am. There's a few moments, right? We get it right. The vast majority of the time, I'm letting people down. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a significant disappointment. I forget to call. I forget to respond. They want a hug and I high five. I just, I don't ever get it right. They need help moving. I'm busy. When I need help moving, I expect everybody else to be there. Yeah, I'm very much a selfish friend. A few moments I'll get it right. For the vast majority of the time, what? I'm not. I need my friendships to be tempered and shrouded with grace. I need to be friends with with people who know the love of Jesus and they're never going to love me. And this transcends to every area of my life. It's not enough for me to let a bull go in and be slaughtered on my behalf. I need a Savior whose sacrifice is once for all, whose grace and mercy meets me new every morning. And so this is is so significant. In the Old Testament, imagine that. You only got to feel better about things once a year and just while the priest was in there atoning for your sins. And then as soon as you leave, you begin to rack up this list of reasons why you're unworthy and you don't measure up. And all the reasons why you don't get to experience and enjoy God's favor. All year long, you're reminded that you're inadequate and you're, 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 you're sinful and rebellious and, and unworthy. The beautiful thing about the New Testament is this. While we're still those things, Jesus says, I love you anyway. I'm setting a table before all of you. 
to invite the inadequate, the unworthy, the sinful, the rebellious to come and to do what? To dine with me. This is what grace is. So thankful that Jesus has entered once and for all into the holy places for the sins of all people. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The very next chapter in Hebrews 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have now what? Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, remember the difference is not who God is or who we are in Old Testament worship versus New Testament worship. The difference is what? The way we enter in. We no longer need a lampstand. Right? Why? Jesus himself said what? John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We don't need a, a lampstand here to remind us that the presence of God brings light. We have the presence of God. Matter of fact, Jesus says what? You're now the light of the world, you who believe. In the same way that the, the lampstand had branches that, right, that gave way to the different Candles, you and I now are grafted in, abiding in the vine of Jesus. And so his light becomes our light. But think about that. That's, man, that's big. Okay, go back to Shekinah glory, the unapproachable light of God that in the end will replace the sun. That light dwells in you if you believe. That light dwells in you. The unapproachable light of God which used to be housed in the tent or the temple, now resides in those who believe. God's presence is in you. You are the light of the world, right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts a bushel basket over it. What? No, you put it out for the world to see. You are to be the light. John 6, Jesus says what? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Your fathers, this is verse 49, ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. The point of the... The bread in the Old Testament temple, the point of it doesn't change. God still wants to commune and dine with us. We just don't do it the old way anymore. A new and better way has been opened up. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to just make one more point about the difference between temporal worship and eternal worship. So what happened in the Old Covenant was very temporary. It seemed to satisfy for the moment, but, but as soon as the, the people walked away, they began to forget 
and they begin to feel guilty and burdened again. Now we have an eternal sacrifice on our behalf. And so here's the thing, okay? So like every heart in this room right now, I'll be so bold as to say, every heart in this room needs God for a number of reasons. I'll point out some of the obvious ones. Some of you are broken right now, okay? Um, Broken because of of some sort of loss or some sort of suffering. Um, Something unexpected happened. Somebody mistreated you. They spoke ill of you. They brought harm to you. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you were abused and abandoned when you were young children, and that suffering still has a residual effect on you. Some of you are lonely. Some of you are single and wish you had somebody. Some of you have somebody and wish you didn't. Right, so our desperate need is present in this room. Some of us have been chasing after our own idols, and we're at that place where they're just, we realize they're never going to attain them, and even if we did, they wouldn't satisfy us, and so we don't know what to do. Some of you may have walked in here today feeling like your life was just shrouded in darkness, hopelessness. It felt like you were fumbling around in the dark without a light. Don't know which way to go and what God's purpose is. And, right? and so you're looking for direction. You need a light to be lit so you can see. So every person in this room needs the presence of God right now. But let me make a contrast. What we don't need is temporary relief. If you are after temporary relief, you can go find it in all kinds of sources out here. So many of you know that, right? You've got a long list of things you've tried. And for the moment, you feel better. But what we need today is eternal relief, eternal redemption. You need, for the God of the universe, right, the God of Shekinah glory, holiness, to touch you. And so... Here's what my prayer is going to be, okay? We're about to take some time to reflect and think about what God's speaking to you. The new and better way is opened up for you. The table has been set. The presence of God is here, and he wants to work in your life in eternal ways. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this begins by coming first to the table that he has set before you of grace and mercy. It's at the table that you realize, despite your inadequacies and your unworthiness, Jesus desires to dine with you anyway. He's invited the prominent and the VIPs, and nobody showed up, so now he's coming to us, right? The are-nots, the have-nots, the rejects, the unworthy. He's saying, I've got a table, and I've got a seat for you. Come dine with me. And on the table is grace and mercy and love and favor and forgiveness and eternal life. And here's what he says. Remember, the old covenant was what? Obey, and you'll be blessed. The new covenant is what? Believe, and you have a seat at my table. So the first things first, I want to pray for you. If you're here today and you do not know the love and the mercy and the grace of God, if you've never come to the table and sat down and allowed God to serve you despite your unworthiness, that's my prayer for you. You would come and know the goodness of God by faith and trust in Jesus, not just for this moment, but for eternal life. For those who have made that decision who are Christians, my prayer today is that once again we would return to the cross to lay down our idols, to lay down our own reasoning and ambitions and all the things that tend to try to take the place of God in our lives, that we would lay those things down, allow Jesus to reside, 
on the throne of our hearts to recapture our affections and our adoration and our worship. So I'm going to pray that for us. We're going to take some time to reflect and let God move in your life. Um, Our prayer partners will be back at the back. I'm going to ask Jason Lewis to come up and just uh, maybe place some behind us. If you want to come kneel and pray, you want to stay where you're seated, you can do that. But my prayer is that we would now respond to the word of God in the midst of the presence of God right here and right now. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do want to stop now. We want to acknowledge the things that you've said to us from your word. That despite our inadequacies, despite our consistent pattern of rebellion and disappointment and sinfulness that you continue to offer grace and mercy. Thank you for that. Thank you for opening up a new and better way into the holiness of God. We don't have to send in a high priest on our behalf, but we get to go in with you to the very presence of God. So now we, as we bow in faith, we Respond in faith, believing that you are able to touch the deepest, most desperate places in our lives. To bring hope where there's despair. To bring light where there's darkness. To bring healing where there's brokenness. To bring fellowship where there's loneliness. To bring mercy and grace where there is shame and guilt. So right now in this moment, God, would you... As we just sang earlier, would you let your glory shine around? Holy Spirit of God, would you fill this place and fill our hearts? Through your presence, would you call us into repentance and call us into faith and call us, Lord Jesus, into worship? We give you this time now. We give you our hearts. We pray this in your powerful name.